What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey everyone, welcome to the Heart Over Hype podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Shamar Charles. This podcast focuses on the goal of providing unique and culturally sensitive perspectives on physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health and wellness. Our goal is to provide you with the best millennial and Gen Z health news you can use. If you like this podcast, follow us on Instagram at HOHThePodcast and give us a rating of five stars on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Now, without further delay, let's get started. Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Heart Over Hype podcast, your one-stop shop for health news you can use. I'm your host, Dr. Shamar Charles, and today I have with me a very special guest, writer, content creator, sex health advocate, and host of the ProHo podcast, Penda Jai. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. So first, let me give y'all some not-so-quick background information on Penda because she's amazing and her list of accolades are deservedly long as fuck. Penda is a proud Senegalese-American and graduate of the NYU Chiss School of the Arts. She's also a former professional dancer, although she currently expresses herself through words and storytelling. Her evolution in the sex health space is pretty amazing. It started with her mom gifting her a vibrator for Christmas, sparking a conversation on lack of sexual dialogue and how societal, racial, and religious constructs stifle our sexual liberties. From those conversations, she created the brand ProHo, to eradicate stigmas surrounding sexual freedom and identity in black communities and has been hyper-focused on using sex and taboo as a means of political change and resistance. On her ProHo podcast, Penda speaks with creatives on sex and sexual identities while answering anonymous sex and dating questions from listeners. She also curates and leads community events with sponsorships by Planned Parenthood, sex therapists, and social workers to create a safe space to discuss sexual experiences and trauma. But I must say, I've known Penda for years. Uh, We went to college together. And what connects us is her writing. She's one of the best writers I know. And her work can be found in Vice, Refinery29, and Arfa, to name a few. I could go on forever, but I'll stop there and let Penda tell you more about her journey and how she became involved in the sex health space. Yes, definitely. So I actually was a professional dancer for the majority of my life, and that's what brought me to New York uh, by way of Colorado. So that's why we met at NYU. I went to Tisch. So I was, um, I've always been an artist. I've always been a storyteller. I always felt the desire to connect with people through artistry and through, you know, expression. And it just so happened that the beginning of my life, that was through physical 
connection and through dance and movement. But um, even now, as I continue into my work in Proho, I realize how much of my work as a dancer around my body and understanding how to communicate using my body is a lot of the impulse for the work that I do with sexual wellness and with pleasure. So I started Proho um, a few years ago after my mom gave me a vibrator for Christmas and everyone's usually pretty surprised <laughs> at, <laughs> at that. But honestly, like I just, I thank my mom every day. She's in my phone listed as the source because she really is the source for my my world as it is right now because she gave me that special gift of a vibrator um and when she gave me the gift she just said that she wished she would have spoken to her kids about sex at a much younger age and so that really like created this dialogue between us about how you know i learned about sex honestly through porn through the media through my friends but there weren't these frank honest conversations about sexual wellness specifically around pleasure like even in sex education we talk about abstinence you talk about stis you talk about you know, religious constructs that maybe will inform how you engage in sexual behavior and in your relationships, but we don't really talk about the joy and the euphoria that pleasure and sex can also give to your life, which I think is so important for Black people because typically we haven't been afforded the luxury to just be free and express ourselves however you choose. So that really prompted me to start writing and blogging about my own sexual experiences, hoping that if I can talk about it, other people will feel confident and we can kind of normalize and destigmatize sexual identities. Um, so that's really how I've gotten here. <laughs> um, and it's been a really interesting and fun journey. And there's the podcast and the writing and the events. And it's really now focusing on, I think more than ever, just how we can use pleasure as like an act of resistance and how for, for black people being happy and being prideful about however you choose to express yourself sexually is really is creating a new narrative for yourself and breaking stereotypes. I love your story. I it's so relatable. One of the things that I'm thinking about is I'm first generation Haitian American and we never, ever, ever spoke about sex in the household. And even to this day, it's still an uncomfortable conversation. Why do you think it's so difficult for us to talk about sex? Yeah, I mean, I think, on, and my father is from Senegal and from Muslim. So I grew up kind of in this like mixed household of like a black American mom and a immigrant father, which, oh my gosh, I would die even talking about sex to my dad. There was like no way that that would have ever happened. And I mean, my mom, my mom is open, but I think sometimes she's also contradictory. And like in one regard, she gives me the vibrator for Christmas. And then on another regard, she's like, oh, well, you know, men, why would they buy the cow when they can get the milk for free? So she still has these kind of like, you know, she's trying to be progressive and liberal. You can see the work that she's trying to undo some of the trauma and, you know, stigmas that like her mom told her but then there's also on the other hand where she still kind of adheres to like traditional monogamous and like christian ideals of marriage and sex so you know i think our parents in that generation just are still doing some unlearning for themselves in terms of how they parent and teach their kids about sex but honestly i think it a lot of it relates back to unfortunately like chattel slavery and the hypersexualization of black people's bodies and how there was always like a fetishization and ownership over our bodies that i think we just have these stereotypes on top of us and narratives that really don't allow us to break free of of those 
um, tropes of us being like sexually aggressive or wild or deviant. So I think our parents do a lot of work to protect us in that way of like, even the same way that, you know, we have to always be groomed and like your hair has to be together and your clothes have to be together. I think our parents have this protection over us of like, we want you, we want to present you to the world in the best way possible, the most palatable way so that like the odds are stacked for you as opposed to against you. So I think sexuality is something that they feel they have to keep as a secret and it, it, it shouldn't be a secret because I feel like white people have the luxury of being very sexually expressive, but they're not hoes or they're not sluts. They're just like, oh, she's free and she's a free spirit. And like, that just doesn't apply for us. The double standard is maddening, but also though, term sexual deviance is like triggering, right? Because there's nothing <laughs> yeah. wrong with sex. Did your mom help you work through those double standards? And how did those conversations with your mom evolve? Yeah, I honestly think that the vibrator gift, she probably won't admit it, but I think it was kind of shady because she was like, are you single and you're not dating anyone? It was coming from that place. And she was like, why are you having sex? Like, and I was like, sis, don't worry, I'm getting lines. Okay. But I think she was just kind of like, well, if you're not in a relationship, then like, at least um, are you masturbating? So, and I was, I was really surprised, honestly, that we we're having these conversations, but I think it comes from this mothering of, she's like, are you single? Are you dating? What's it like? Like, you're just out there in New York by yourself. So I think she was kind of, it was a gift, kind of like a gag gift. She was like, well, you, you don't got a man. So at least like, hope you're getting off. I think that's where the gift came from. Um, <laughs> so I think that was really the turning point in our relationship. And so after that happened, I was kind of like more open with her about my dating experiences and saying, well, like, well, in that case, actually, like I am seeing someone, but like, you know, we're not so sexually compatible or, you know, I am seeing this person, but you know, I, I think I started divulging a little bit more information about my dating life. And that was kind of the beginning of when like that, that vibrator was really kind of the torch of like, oh, okay, so maybe we can start having more normal conversations. Um, and then, you know, I think I started getting a little bit more explicit and being like, oh, I was dating this guy and I liked him, but, you know, I'm a sizist and like maybe his dick wasn't the size that I like wanted or something like I would start to be like a little bit more explicit and, and I felt like we could joke about it and I was I was testing the water a little bit um and even we were on vacation last week and, she, and when we left she was like okay well I'm, I'm manifesting that you'll meet a nice man and I'm just like oh my god okay okay mom and I'm sure your parents too are praying if you're a single or any Haitian immigrant parents are like when are you finding a wife when are you getting a husband when are <laughs> it's just like part of the culture so I think that shift just kind of came with with adulthood and and, and growing and and knowing I think that she wants she's anxious for me to like have a family and I think knowing that that equals also that there's going to be intimacy and, and partnership and sex involved in that yeah, I think marriage is certainly a huge topic of conversation. Fortunately, they like my partner, so I've bought myself some time. With that said, and not surprisingly, sex is never a topic of conversation. And given the dynamics of my relationship with my parents, I think that that's okay. But I knew the minute I decided to start a podcast that this would be a topic that I would address. Not only would I sort of address sex as a health topic and from a health standpoint, but I would, you know, discuss it in general because I'm not sure that I believe that sex should be a topic right. that we hide from our right. family and friends. In fact, I think having candid conversations about sex and how to engage in it responsibly are part of our journey uh, to building healthy relationships. 
Exactly. I think also like, cause my mom said something to me the other day and she's like, Oh, I was on your Instagram and you said some things that, you know, just be careful. Cause everything you put out on the internet, is going to follow you forever. So I just, you know, when you're 50 years old, if you're looking for a job, I don't want this to come back and haunt you. And I was like, first of all, when I'm 50, I surely ain't going to be looking for any job because I'm going to be working for myself. But also, um, I just feel like it's, it comes from, like I was saying before, it's just like this protection aspect of being like, even for her to say like anything's on the internet list forever, which like, great, I know that, but it's also like, I'm not out here, like no, nothing against sex worker. I, I believe in sex workers, I support them, but it's like, I'm not out here doing an OnlyFans mom. So like the fact that she still feels like the need to say, be careful. I'm like, it, I literally am just speaking my mind and in, in a way that I feel like is very positive and constructive. So I think there's all, there's also just this narrative of like, they want to make sure that we can still fit within this white capitalistic society that and 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 have a job and make money I think that's really where it comes from is like fear of just rejection from society when like most of our generation I think is trying to like get away from white supremacy but our family and previous generations they that's all they knew was like just do what the white man says and make your money and and provide for your family your words remind me actually of a story that I covered uh for NBC last year it was on abortion rights and we were in the deep south, I think it was Mississippi. And I can tell you that regardless of anyone's personal feelings on set, whether it was pro-life or pro-choice, the crew and my entire team felt that having a bunch of old white men create and vote on legislature as it pertains to women's reproductive rights right. just felt wrong. Um, when you see that shit happening in 2020, how does that make you feel? I mean, and even those as far as to say, like, even beyond just, like, making the laws about reproductive health, it's, like, white men are the ones who designed birth control. They're the ones that have designed the majority of sex toys, lube, pleasure. Like, they literally are. (laughs) And it really makes no sense that when you think about it, that white men are in control of of how we receive pleasure via sex toys or like they really own the sex tech industry and also in terms of birth control like they are the they're the creators of that and it's just really fascinating to me that I'm like wow to me I always do this comparison that we're kind of living in this like new racism of like maybe in slavery the way that our bodies were hypersexualized and the ownership over our bodies and that even if that comes from like selling our bodies and the rape of of black people's bodies and or even just like black women breastfeeding white people's bodies to now modern day when you see like those those there's still this governing over our bodies that maybe looks differently and it's a little more subtle and you don't you don't think it's the same kind of like ownership over our bodies but it's still the commodification of black people's bodies in order to benefit white capitalistic society and so yeah I think that it's it's really insane that that's still happening to this day and that people are still you know making decisions for our bodies and even if you feel like you have a choice it's still your choice is still limited in order to fulfill whatever types of of monetary gain or needs are coming from from um white (laughs) capitalism white supremacy you know what i mean so um yeah i don't really know how i think even in our sex education system all of the models are eurocentric it really doesn't speak to any type of black sexual liberation or black sexual politics um and i always say you know sometimes even within our black communities we're still adhering to if you're only supporting 
like black love as it relates to heterosexual black love like you have to understand that you're also uplifting racism and that like racism and heterosexism mutually construct each other so i feel like sometimes in our black communities we have these stigmas with different sexual identities not knowing that like those divisions have been put in place by racism and so it's just like even when you start to dissect that you realize that the white the white man is still infiltrating our communities and how we express ourselves man it's so crazy how important it is to unpack shit uh to be aware of shit and then to lean into like the anti-movement right like it's got to be action-based like we can't just like talk about it and theorize i almost feel like in this academic prism that we've been uh brought up in people love to theorize without the action behind it <laughs> right actually that's like that's actually why i'm a big fan of social media activism to be honest i know that people have like uh, different thoughts about it but i love it because it is a, a way to highlight and put a spotlight on just egregiously awful behavior and ways of thinking, especially old ways of thinking. And we just have to unpack and undo that shit. We have to un unpack it, yeah. And I know it sucks sometimes, like there's some, some books that I'm reading that are so dense and like I read it before bed, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm still, I have to reread the page and, and it's like, it's really boring. But once you like get that information, the way that you realize how it mirrors like current day is really is really fascinating so i feel like it's important to to do that work of like learning the history of things because even reading books about slavery which like typically isn't like the content that i want to be reading necessarily but it's so necessary to like how i talk about the body today and you know so i think it's important to do that work that is very real. Um, I don't want to absolve myself from any ownership or doing the work, but in America, it seems like objectifying women in music, television, magazines, social media, really yeah. all forms of media is as American as apple pie. And as a man, I think that constantly being bombarded by hypersexualized images of women does a number on our psyche. It kind of fucks you up oh absolutely so it's hard to build good habits and healthy norms when the messaging around you is contrary to the ideals that you're being taught what are your thoughts on that do you think women are finally taking the reins and owning their bodies and the images that are being created more than they have in the past yeah i think that there is a, definitely a shift happening and it's probably been happening the last you know, a few years, but I think if you really think back to your childhood and, and myself as like a dark skinned woman, I literally never saw myself represented on any type of magazine, television, billboard, like those images of beautiful black dark skinned women are just rare and few, far between. And um, I think, you know, it, it relates to how we typically think of black beauty is like maybe light skin, curly hair, curly Afro, because that's what the media has told us is beautiful in terms of blackness. Um, so I think that there has been a shift in, in black women speaking up about these issues and saying that, you know, 
black skin is beautiful. Like you, like you said to your, to your point of like social activism, I feel like on Instagram, especially now, like I see the community, I see black men, I see black women being like black is beautiful, dark is beautiful, but it also follows into trends of when you see different magazines being like, Oh yeah, this month we're going to put this dark skin woman on the cover. We're going to have all these dark skin women on the runways because it's trendy. And so like, that's always the topic of conversation. Is this a movement? Are they still going to be, propping up dark skinned black women are they still popping up na- propping up natural hair right like these things usually only come in trends and so i think that it's it's changing for for women in terms of kind of going against what we've been taught is beautiful and leaning into like wow like the realization that black is beautiful that natural hair is beautiful that dark skin is beautiful um but i still think it's going to take some unlearning i think there's still a lot of colorism that even exists within our own communities that we're working working through you know i say sometimes like i grew up in colorado which was extremely white and i didn't know any other african people because my father was like very superstitious about letting other Africans into our family and into our home life. But a lot of the, a lot of the attacks on my looks and my skin color came from other black people as opposed to other white people. It was always like, oh, you're African or like, you're so dark skin, you're pretty for a dark skin. All of those things still resonate with me and it's shit that I'm working out now. But I think it's interesting that it becomes like that hate to me, I feel like it's self-hate personally came from other Black people not knowing like just the beauty of their own people and their own culture. Did that self-hate impact your mental health long-term or do you feel like that's something the perpetrator needs to unpack? No, I think definitely the perpetrator needs to unpack that self-hate, but it definitely also affected me, <laughs> my mental health and my self-confidence and my ability to know my own self-worth, my ability to be intimate and to be vulnerable in ways and relationships, because I think I always held on to this kind of idea of of like unworthiness. And I talk about it a little bit um, like on my podcast about like the idea of scarcity and how scarcity is really a concept that Um, comes from like inadequacy. And for a long time, I really felt inadequate. So I would settle for mediocre relationships, mediocre sex, mediocre jobs or whatever, because I was like, oh, this is as good as I'm going to get. Like, I don't deserve more than this. And I think a lot of it came from, from those comments that came at an early age. But I think it also came a lot from like my home, my home situation where I didn't feel supported all the time in terms of, of like my mom, this is like, whoa, this goes so deep. But just in terms of like having the support of saying like, (laughs) you're beautiful or you're special or you're so talented. I feel like those kind of remarks were like rare. So it's like, I feel like I was getting kind of this energy from other black people, but then I wasn't also being uplifted like at home in ways that I felt like needed to kind of counterbalance the negativity that I was getting from, from other people. So I think, um, yeah, now it's it's constantly like therapy and unlearning and making sure that I don't take that trauma into current relationships and where I'm like, no, bitch, like you deserve this love. You deserve yes. greatness. <laughs> like, yes. you know, you deserve <laughs> like, right. But I feel like a lot of times I find myself catching myself and being like, oh, the, like, am I pretty enough? Am I cool enough? And I think a lot of that comes from, yeah, just just always feeling like, I just was inadequate and that that comes from my childhood for sure. I think so much of that angst that we feel from repressed trauma is rooted in five things. Yes. It's sexism, man's interpretation of religion, 
racism, misogyny, and classism. It really does boil down to those five things. It's amazing how much we model our behavior and inherit beliefs from our parents, our family, and the people around us without ever really unpacking it all. We kind of just inherit it and it becomes ours. Uh, Rarely do we ever take the time to break down our beliefs into its constituent components. It actually doesn't make any sense. Um, If we were going to invest in a car, we would inspect every aspect of it, the engine, fuel efficiency, the brakes. But when it comes to certain parts of our health, i.e. our sexual health, we completely neglect it for reasons that are unbeknownst to me. It actually doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. But I think it's also just the mentality. And when I think about my father and, you know, he passed away almost six years ago, but thinking about his life story of just coming to America as an immigrant and literally just wanting to provide, assimilate, make money and support his family, there wasn't, there was really no room. There was no leisure moments of like, oh, let me think about the trauma that I've endured and how I don't want to pass that on to my children. It was just like, listen, you have a place to sleep, you have food to eat, you have, a, you have an education. What else, what else do you need from me? You know, it's like, honestly, it's, it's, it's a privilege. And I always say that like self-care, any type of mental health, any type of physical health is a privilege that a lot of black people do not have are, are not exposed to, right? Like self-care takes time, it takes money, it takes energy. And if you're a black person who's living in an impoverished place, if you're living in a food desert, if you don't have access to healthy food, if you don't have access to the ability to run safely in your neighborhood, if you don't have access to mental health providers, mental self-care is not as glamorous as wellness professionals are marketing on Instagram and being like, it's so easy meditate for, you know, if you have to get up and feed five kids, you're not really thinking about how you can undo the trauma and ancestral trauma that you've endured and how you want to be better for your kids, you know? So I think that's something to keep in mind too, is not everybody just has, is accessible, has the accessibility to take the time to, to think about that stuff, which is unfortunate. Right. We're definitely not a one size fits all people. That's for sure. And we know that all the components of health deserve their own attention because they're so important. But we do need to have resources. So that's very real. And we actually talked about some of the uh, affordable resources that people can get for their mental health in our last episode. So I hope that people check it out. But you did mention Instagram and wellness and how people market themselves as sex positive, kink friendly therapists. It's definitely in vogue now. But I'll tell you that from my own experience, many doctors, nurses, and therapists are afraid to take a sexual history, let alone do uh, the sexual health part of the physical exam. So it begs to wonder how so many people who are might have an aversion to doing this kind of um, testing and evaluation um, feel as if they are qualified to provide this type of therapy. With the uptick in demand for these services, but also an increasing number of snake oil services on the market. Can you tell us more about how people can find a sex positive therapist that works for them? This is really like perfect timing because I just wrote an article that came out, well, it was two weeks ago for Vice um, called How to how to find a sex positive therapist. And we, and like I go and I'm speaking with different, you know, and I'll send you the link if you wanna put it in the, the show notes. But it basically talks about how 
like you said, kink sexual identities and, you know, sex positivity is definitely in vogue and becoming more common in terms of conversation. So with that, there are more people who are seeking therapy around these different sexual identities and, and kink and BDSM and polyamory, other forms of ethical non-monogamy. Yet there isn't really, you know, an excess amount of clinicians and therapists who are qualified to talk about these types of sexual behaviors. And so in return, you're kind of finding these clinicians who are falsely marketing themselves as being sex positive, but don't really have the tools and aren't equipped to, to assess people who want to talk about it, or they end up, end up um, pathologizing kink behaviors or non-normative sexual behaviors as like a mental illness. And that's not true at all. So it's like, if you're into BDSM, if there's a therapist who doesn't understand like the subtleties of power play of submission and dominance, like they might say, oh, your partner is really narcissistic and they're dangerous. Get out of there. When in reality, it's like, oh no, we, we, we enjoy this kind of like danger and like difficult, like hardcore sex if that's what they're into. So yeah, I think that there are so many different tools. I think for anyone who's who's working in the space, you have to understand like we all come in with our own frameworks, we all come in with our own biases, but like you have to understand how to check those that framework and and your own sexual experiences and understand how to assess someone else's sexuality and sexual identity without placing your own judgment onto it, which I think is extremely difficult. I think let's be real. I think we all <laughs> judge people whether we like to admit it or not, but. Um, I think that you just have to have, there's so much training, additional training for these professionals to come in and to understand and have the appropriate skills to assess people who need care, sexual care. But it's a lot of work. Thank you for sharing that perspective. I think we all certainly need it. So we're going to shift gears and we're going to end this uh, segment by playing an HOH special called Myth Busting. This is actually my favorite part of the show because it's our way of answering our viewers' most pertinent questions, but it's also a way of increasing health literacy. True facts over fake news all day, every day. Okay, so number one, a woman should be sexually reserved, at least initially, to increase her chance of attracting or keeping her partner. Hell no. I don't believe, I do not believe in that at all. I do think that there are some people who um, want to have sexually reserved partners for whatever reason. You know, I think it's like, we always go back to that saying, what is it? Um, uh, freak on, what is it? Lady in the street, freak in the sheets, right? So like those, <laughs> those type of sayings, I do think there are people who exist who want that, right? But I don't think ever that you should mute your sexual expression for the benefit of someone else. I think that there's someone else out there for you that is your partner, that is equally yoked for you, and you should never dim your sexual expression or your pleasure or your joy in order to think that, like, I have to be demure or submissive in order to attract a partner. And I find that, found that myself, even, even with dating, that, like, there's some men want my ex was really uncomfortable with the fact that I spoke about sex and was like well if we're gonna be serious and are you comfortable deleting your blog are you comfortable not talking about sex and I was just like uh you, this could never work this is my entire practice in life so um yeah I do think that some people are like that and those people should just go and shut up and sit down somewhere and go join a convent 
this is fun, right? Okay. Ladies and fellas, I hope you hear Panda or at least take those words into consideration when you're unpacking your stuff. Okay, question two. A successful and healthy relationship to sex with your partner and yourself is contingent on reinvention. So in other words, do people need to reinvent their sex life every five years, 10 years (laughs) and beyond in order for it to be considered healthy? Absolutely. I think I always speak on how curiosity with your sexuality, with yourself, with your partner is so pertinent in terms of your sexual growth. I, I say that we are not the same people that we were a year ago, a month ago, yesterday, we have different sexual needs, we're changing, we're evolving, we're getting older, our bodies are changing, our hormones are changing. So I think it's really, it's doing a disservice to you if you think that like, you can be you can show up as the same person sexually and your partner is the same person sexually over time. I think you have to always have this continued investigation of your body of what feels good. And it's, it's important to communicate your desires. They may change. Like, you know, I have a, I have a partner who sends me like porn on WhatsApp and he's like, I saw this. Should we try this? And I'm like, should we? yeah, let's try it. And maybe it's not for us and maybe it is, but I like, I think that there should always be this kind of investigation and like energy of, of, of wanting to explore the capacity of your pleasure and what feels good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so honored to call you friend. This was such an enlightening conversation. Where can people find your work? Yeah, for sure. I'm excited. I'm so happy. Congratulations for you for this podcast. And I'm always happy to support uh, you can find me on Instagram at Penda Jai, P-E-N-D-A-J-A-I. And from there, you can basically link out to, you know, you can find all my all my stuffs on the, on the Instagram. You can also go to improho.com, I-M-P-R-O-H-O-E.com. You can find my writing and podcast, everything from there. That's a wrap, folks. Thank you again, Pender, for your wise words. We learned so much. Please like and share all her material, y'all. If you have any questions or comments, slide in my DMs at HOH the podcast. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, wear a mask, and I look forward to our next conversation. Same time, same place. See you next week. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.